Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's reading comes from Jonah, chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came on the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You may be seated. And as you're being seated, would you join me in prayer this morning? Jesus, we want to see you and to know you and to know your heart and your disposition towards us this morning. Help us, slow us down, calm our minds, move by your Spirit that we might behold your glory and in beholding your glory be changed be transformed. It's his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. I haven't met you yet. I'd love to say hi. I'll send my welcome along with Louisa's and the rest of the teams. Uh, this morning is our last week in the book of Jonah. Our last week. We're done. It took us only eight weeks to go through four chapters. And so we did it. But as we conclude this morning, we do well to remind ourselves that while Jonah is this unique prophetic book that is more about the prophet than the prophet's message, it is definitely and certainly and most importantly first a book about God, about who God is. Jonah is not the hero of Jonah. You've seen that. It's been pretty clear. Described repeatedly as very evil, Nineveh is certainly not the hero of Jonah. What's more, the closest thing this book has to good guys, right, these noble pagan sailors, right, they're only good in so much as they throw themselves on the mercy of God. 
No, Jonah is not first a book about Jonah or Ninevites or sailors or even kings, for that matter. It's a book about God, about what God is like, what God has done in history and what God is doing today and what God will do. It's a book about God. And so however you've come this morning, having not thought about God all week until now, or perhaps thinking him to be a figment of our collective wishful imagination, or even if you're questioning his goodness or his wisdom. This morning we're ending our time in Jonah by asking the question, what do these four chapters have to tell us about God? What he's like and what he's doing in this world. In an effort not to miss the forest for the trees, we're going to look at three things. God's heart, God's mission, and God's justice. God's heart, God's mission, and God's justice. So Bible's open to Jonah 4. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back for you. If you don't have a Bible at all, take it, keep it. It's our gift to you. But Jonah 4 is where we'll spend a bunch of our time as well as jumping around the rest of the Bible this morning. And so first, God's heart. The heart of God, maybe you heard it, it came to the forefront this morning as Jonah concludes in verse 10 to 11. And the Lord said, notice, you pity, have compassion on the plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then again, verse 11, and should not I pity or have compassion on Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Again, Jonah, we've seen, only has a heart for his own interests. But God, we now see, has a heart inclined to the interests of others, is looking to others, even those who have severely denied him or hated him. The, the phrase that begins verse 11, look at your Bibles. It says, and should not I pity, and should not I pity, it signals to us that while God's wrath and judgment against Nineveh is justified and warranted, he nonetheless desires to stay his overthrowing hand. His destroying hand. Why? What's the reason? Again, verse 11. For there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. While atheists believe there is no God and deists believe in his removed, distant, transcendent existence and that alone... Christian theism has always held that the God whom we worship is a God who is personal and a God who is near. God in Jonah is not removed from world events. What a timely word. God in Jonah is not removed from world events. God sees evil on a national and global scale. He hears, nonetheless, individual cries, and he intervenes according to his sovereign plan. And so let me just paint for you a big picture of Jonah. God sees, Jonah 1-2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city Jonah, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. God sees. 
He hears. Jonah 2.1. I call out to the Lord, Jonah says, out of my distress, and he answered me. He sovereignly intervened according to his perfect will. Jonah 1.4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah 2.3. For you, O Lord, cast me into the deep. And Jonah 2.10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And of course, in chapter 4, God appointed a worm to do his bidding. From the worm to the whale, every aspect of creation, God is sovereign over. He rules and he reigns. And now as Jonah concludes, we see gloriously that underneath his sovereign intervention, underneath his interactions and dealing with the world, underneath the confusing events of our day, and the tragedy of our lives lies a God whose heart is compassion towards his people. Love towards his people. And not just for people, but a compassion, by the way, that extends to all of creation as Jonah curiously ends, even to cattle, even to cows. And as an aside, if you are one of the many people in our city who are riddled with climate anxiety. The ending of Jonah should come as good news to you. God has his eyes and his ears turned, not just to human souls, but to every corner of creation. He misses nothing. Nothing. He sees each blade of grass, each rolling brook, and even every cow. It's good news to know that his compassionate heart is turned towards every facet of creation. And last week we saw how Jonah was like Elijah, right? Elijah the prophet who went also out of the city and also under a plant and also wished to die. Except at least for Elijah, Elijah's sadness was motivated by Israel's lack of repentance, while Jonah's sadness is motivated by Nineveh's repentance. Elijah in this way is better than Jonah, but there is better one still. See, many years after God would send his last prophet, the true prophet, the best prophet, one who would perfectly represent before the people the very character of God, a prophet who would carry not only God's message, but carry God's heart. See, this last prophet would be God's own son. And so we find in Luke 19, Jesus is outside the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in many ways, no better than Nineveh. In Luke 19, we read that Jerusalem, meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jerusalem, meant to be the center of worship, of piety, of devotion. Jerusalem is instead a den of robbers, a place of profiteering and insiders. And it's so bad that in Luke 19, when Jesus famously drives out these robbers... Luke uses the same language as one who drives out demons. It's that bad in Jerusalem. How will God respond to evil inward-looking Jerusalem? We see this when Jesus, like Jonah, goes outside the city. But here, how unlike Jonah is Jesus' response. 
while Jonah waited outside the city, hoping for its destruction, right? Jesus instead, Luke 19, 41 to 42, Jesus instead, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. God, Jesus, weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over their sin. And God's compassion for all people, for all people, from Genesis to Revelation remains the same. Now this sounds lovely, right? This sounds good. Who would resist a God like this? Full of compassion, overflowing with mercy. I think we find at least one of the reasons in both Jonah and Luke. Again, look back at Jonah with me. Listen to how God describes the Ninevites in Jonah 4, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, he says, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, listen, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This saying, this phrase, who do not know their right hand from their left, is on the one hand extremely gracious, extremely generous, generous of God, but it's also humiliating. Nineveh is a proud city, advanced in their own right, a civilized people in their own way, and here Yahweh says about them, they do not know their right hand from their left. Which means that grace cuts both ways. On one hand, grace comes to us as a treasured gift. On the other hand, as we've already sung this morning, grace exposes our need, our limits, our inability to see our right hand from our left. And the same thing happens in Luke's gospel. Jesus says about these religious leaders who supposedly know God, who have given their lives to studying Torah, worshiping Yahweh, right? Who supposedly know about his plan for shalom in the world. He says about them, no, you do not know on this day the things that make for peace. What makes for peace, religious leaders, is hidden from your eyes. Just like Nineveh, just like the Pharisees, in our pride, all of humanity is blind to the compassion of God and our need for the compassion of God. In our long-cherished belief that we can do it, we can do it, we can do it, just do it. We can be better. We can make something of ourselves. We can do it on our own. In our long-cherished belief, we unknowingly forfeit an opportunity to experience the compassion that each one of us longs for. Now, pastorally speaking, I understand our hesitancy to appeal to the compassion of another in this life. It makes us vulnerable. We appear weak needy. And to be fair, we can't always be confident that in that vulnerable state we'll receive compassion in return. 
But God's heart towards us and Jesus' promise to us is that as we turn from our sin, we are not met with a smug, I told you so, or about time. But in the gospel, we're met with welcome home. We know this because the very same compassion that led to Jesus weeping outside Jerusalem would lead to Jesus dying on that cross outside Jerusalem. And from that cross, listen, Jesus would pray, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he does. For all who trust in God's compassion, for all who recognize their blindness and see their need, for all who in humility count themselves among the eternally ignorant, our Heavenly Father forgives. This good news is at the center is what fuels what we must see next in the book of Jonah as we observe the forest. This is point two. God's mission. God's mission. As we noted many weeks ago, the beginning of Jonah would have been startling, scary even to many of its first readers. Here is the prophet Jonah going to wicked Nineveh, going to wicked Assyria, evil Assyria, right? And yet it should not be surprising if we're familiar with the grand story of Scripture. Beginning with God's call to Abraham in Genesis, there has always been an outward focus, an outward purpose to God calling a people to belong to him. There's always been a going element of our faith, if we want to say it like that. And so in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Why? Look at the end of verse 2. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses Abraham. God blesses Israel. God blesses us to be a blessing. To be a blessing. And so even before Jonah, and even before the wild call to go to Nineveh, to go to Assyria, even before all this, you find Israel in differing ways bearing witness to Yahweh amongst those who are not like them. Even in the Old Testament, we see the need, or rather the seed, of God gathering to himself a diverse people. People like the mixed multitude that left Egypt with Israel after witnessing Yahweh's power over Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. People like Ruth the Moabite, who declared to Naomi in Ruth 1.16, your people will be my people and your God, my God. In Jonah, however, this mission goes to new heights. Here is a prophet explicitly commissioned to leave the geographical boundaries of Israel and go, and go, and go. Jonah is an early forerunner of what we would call today cross-cultural missions. He is going to a different people. So from the beginning then, God's saving message has always been expanding 
widening, including stretching and growing from an obscure people in an obscure nation to encompass every inch of this world. Expanding to now include even you and me. Now something like what I'm about to say is said, I think, quite often, at least in the church. And it's usually glossed over. But I want us to really consider this morning, like truly consider, that if you trust in Jesus this morning, you do so because somebody experienced discomfort, pain, perhaps even death itself to bring you the gospel. Don't gloss over that fact this morning. In small ways and in big ways, people died so that you could be sitting here this morning knowing Jesus, singing to Jesus. The English Bible that you hold in your hands right now, right? The one that, you know, if we're being honest, sometimes goes unused on our shelves. It comes to us because of men like William Tyndale, who, by the way, was kidnapped and imprisoned and executed because of his belief that the mission of God went to ordinary folks who even spoke English and not just Latin. It's likely that many of you, if you go far enough down your line, have parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents who were saved at ethnic churches who believed the gospel was for their culture as well. You and I are living proof this morning of the outward movement of the gospel. So, implication. How silly is it when we think that this outward movement that began in Genesis now stops with us? Now, we don't say that out loud. We would never say that out loud. But that's how we live. We live as if the end of all this evangelism over the years was to culminate in my salvation. As if the terminus of God's plan gloriously ended with me. Why else would we not share the gospel? Why else would we prioritize our comfort over the discomfort of going where God calls? It is chronological arrogance. Passivity and transmitting the faith we've received functionally says that we and we alone are the end to which God has been moving all along. The whole book of Jonah is twice framed around this key word. A key word we find first in Jonah 1-2 and then again in Jonah 3-1. Ready? What is that word? Arise. Get up. Get going. Get moving. It's the same commissioning word we hear an echo of as Jesus commissions his disciples, us, in Matthew 28 saying this, Go. Arise, arise therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The, these past few weeks, I've had the joy 
of teaching our members class. It's one of the highlights of the year for me. I don't know if it is for them, but it is for me. I like it. And not only is it helpful in telling others what we believe as a church, it's also really helpful for me and for us to be reminded what we're doing here in the first place. See, one of our core values as a church is that we are a sent people. It's one of our core values, that we're sent people. And so in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he didn't mean just leave. No, what we mean is when he says go, he says, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to the gym, as you go to the coffee shop, as you go about your ordinary life, go with a sense of mission in all things. The same Jesus who came, unlike Jonah, willingly to an evil people, now sends us out, empowers us by his spirit to continue the work that he started and to create opportunities to make other missional, that is disciple-making disciples. Which means if you call this place home this morning, you must refuse to exist on the margins of this community. You must jump all in. We must be all in on the work of discipling new believers or those who don't know Jesus in our community groups. We must be all in with our finances as we seek to provide space and staff and events that shine the light of Christ into Hastings Sunrise. We must be all in on prayer, knowing that we need God's supernatural resources to see God's supernatural means accomplished. And to do anything else, to sit here, is chronological arrogance. It is to say the end of all God's plans is me. It's the kind of arrogance that defined Jonah in the Old Testament and the Apostle Peter in the New. In Matthew 16, 17, we find this curious incident where, where Jesus playing a pun on Peter's name in the name of his father, John, calls Peter, Matthew 16, 17, Simon Bar-Jonah. And what he's getting at, I think, is something like Peter, you know, son of Jonah. Or Peter, Simon Peter, just like Jonah. Just like Jonah. See, like Jonah, Jesus highlights for us, Peter was initially resisting his commissioning. Peter, as some of you will know, will deny Jesus three times. Like Jonah, Peter also has a tendency to see the inclusiveness of God's mission, or to fail to see this inclusiveness. But in probably one of the coolest connections we see in our Bible, and this is so cool, while Joppa in Jonah acts as the port where Jonah fled from God's mission, it is in Joppa, in Acts 10, where Peter, through a vision, yields to God's mission to bring the gospel to all people. In Joppa, same place, where Jonah ran from the Lord's compassion towards the Ninevites, Peter, in Joppa, proclaimed, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. How cool is that? 
God weaving his story even to the place. Just as God's compassion shows no partiality, it is for Israelites and Ninevites, Jew and Gentile, so too does God's mission not pick and choose particular, super spiritual, a good enough people. No. God's mission is for all of us for all time until Christ returns. Which brings us to our third and final point. God's justice. God's justice. Here, here's the tension of preaching through Jonah. And maybe you picked up on that. I know some of you have been discussing this. It can become easy to dog Jonah. As is so common in our age, Jonah's mistakes and failures, his idolatry, his bitterness are easy to magnify, right? Look at him. But I'm not sure our response, given Jonah's experience and context in which he lived, would have been much different. See, it is really hard for us to wrap our head around Jonah's world. Jonah and his family lived under the existential threat of the Assyrian Empire. In just a few generations from this book, Jonah's entire family will be killed by Assyrians. In other words, Jonah's hatred is sort of well-founded. It's very real. And in one real sense, much more legitimate than the kind of animosity we carry around with us on the day-to-day. -day. And in view of this very real reality, the ending of Jonah can read very unsatisfactory. Jonah essentially ends with God asking the question, here it is, will I not have mercy? Will I not have mercy? And this, of course, is not just a Jonah problem but is a problem many of us have as well. Does God's mercy nullify God's justice? Is God's mercy endless? Is he just sweeping the horrible and the tragic and the really evil things of this world under the rug? Is that what God's doing? And we say along with Abraham in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But even as these words are on our lips, our hearts, our hearts, if we know them, they condemn us. Why? Because on different days, we want different things. For example, when I see my sin, I want mercy. Mercy is what I want. But when I see your sin, I want justice. I want justice. And it's not until we turn to the book of Nahum and read about Nineveh's impending destruction where the judge of all the earth will do what is just, we find that that prophetic book essentially ends with the inverse question of Jonah. And so Nahum 3, it begins about Nineveh, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And listen to how Nahum ends. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains, language of judgment, with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. 
For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? If Jonah ends with God saying or asking, will I not have mercy? Nahum ends, will I not have justice? And the answer the Bible tells us is that God will have them both. He will have them both. That there is no contradiction in the character of God. And to see this, we must go to Luke 23. We end our time in Jonah. We end our time in this series by beholding our crucified Lord. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God has mercy. Instead of pouring out his wrath on sinful humanity, the full weight of God's just anger falls on his son. Instead of reaping the death, which Romans 6 says we deserve, what is being offered to us is the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus. Rejoice in God's mercy today seen in the cross. And in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God will have justice. Not on guilty sinners, but on one who goes like a lamb in our place. Evil will be judged, both with the full weight of God's authority and the full weight of God's power. One will bear it on our behalf. And the fact remains, and this is the fact of the whole world, in the words of the reformer Martin Luther, either sin is lying on your shoulders or on the Christ, the Lamb of God. Either sin is lying on my shoulders and your shoulders and our shoulders. Either we're dead in our sin or, or we believe it to be found on Christ, who is the Lamb of God. Either you bear the punishment for sin, which is death, or you trust that Christ in his death bore it on your behalf. Either. And you rejoice in God's justice today. The book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It is, but it really isn't about sailors. It is, but really isn't about sort of repentant Ninevites. The book of Jonah is about a God whose heart is compassion. A God who sees and hears and sovereignly intervenes, even now motivated by his love. It is about a missional God and a missional people. A God whose eyes are set on every person, every tribe, every tongue, and every neighbor. Who says to us this morning, who says to you this morning, arise, get up, get going. It is about a just God who, though slow to anger and abounding in mercy and compassion, nonetheless will execute justice on the wicked, but also invites us wicked to hide in the cleft who is Christ, to hide in the work of Jesus, to take shelter in Christ, Jesus who bore God's just wrath in our place. What else can we do this morning but stand now and worship together? It is the only logical response. As you stand, let me pray. God, there is none like you among the nations. There is none like you among the gods. You alone, God, are full of mercy, full of justice, doing perfectly all your will. 
And we ask for forgiveness this morning for the ways in which we have sat idly by and not been rightly swept up into your mission. For the ways in which we've feared man instead of fearing you. We ask, Lord, that you would put before our eyes as a church a right fear of the Lord. That we would love you in response to your love for us. And that that love would be demonstrated in our going forth to show and to speak this good news. And Jesus, in the midst of great chaos, in a world riddled with war and anxiety, we entrust all our desires for vengeance and for justice to you, knowing that you and you alone perfectly execute justice. You and you alone are the just judge to whom we look and to whom we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.